Ascoli's father, old Sam Ascoli, died 1937, coronation year, when George VI and Queen Elizabeth were crowned in Westminster Abbey, a huge event surrounded by much pomp and ceremony, special mugs handed out to the kids with pictures of the new king and queen on them, public ox roasts up and down the country, great rejoicing and a lot of legless drinking everywhere. My pa used to say if I ever murdered someone I should send for Ned or Will Sands. He gave a mirthless little laugh. <laughs> Never did, but by heaven, Max Askerley did the trick for Golly Goldfinch. He had good expert witnesses, Tommy. Did him proud. And we all knew that Golly Goldfinch was, to use the technical term, a raving loony. Max Askerley simply put the seal on it, demonstrated it to the world. And now he's dead? The Deputy Assistant Commissioner nodded and even made the nod appear to be the action of a mourner, solemn and grief-touched. Max Askerley, his wife Jenny, and the boy Paul, seven, eight years old, poor little sod. Struth! You think it's connected with Goldfinch? Highly unlikely. Count of three. How could it be? Golly's banged up at His Majesty's pleasure. A picture of the girl, Lavender, came into Livermore's head, but he didn't mention her out loud. Lavender was still around somewhere or other. They'd never caught her, and that rankled. Lavender was Golly Goldfinch's cousin, and suspected of all kinds of nefarious doings connected with some of the murders they'd felt Golly's collar for. Then he nodded, saying good thing Golly was banged up, and the DAC knew what he was thinking. We'd have been certain about it if Goldfinch had been topped. Tommy Livermore often said they should have topped Golly Goldfinch and had done with him. Doesn't matter a snowball in hell that he was unhinged. We had him banged to rights over sixteen or more murders. Maybe a lot more if we hadn't stopped counting. Should have hung the little bugger. My view, Hart. And Susie Mountford would nod vigorously because when Tommy had one of his hanging moods on him, the only thing you could do was agree. After all, he should know. He had attended the execution of the one person they'd got for aiding and abetting Goldfinch. Swift as an arrow from the Tartar's bow, as the bard says, his terrible smile. There one minute, gone the next. Pierpoint knows the job, sticks him on the trap, talking to him all the time, reassuring him. You'll be all right with me, son. Steps back, trips the lever, and he's gone. Kerlunk. Doesn't cost the taxpayer a penny once the execution's paid for. Should have happened to Goldfinch. Just over a minute from entering the condemned cell to stretching his neck. Dead humane. And if anyone dared oppose him and suggest capital punishment was barbarous, Detective Chief Superintendent Livermore would make an angry sound and say, Yes, and the earth's flat, I suppose. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that's the sensible way. In fact, he'd been holding forth on the death penalty to three of his sergeants, Billy Mulligan, Molly Abelard and Susie Mountford, when the DAC had called him up to the fifth floor about the killings of the Askerley family in East Anglia, Long Tadmarton, fifteen miles south of King's Lynn, which was why they'd all got the early phone calls. Now he went back to his fourth-floor office, dramatic front pages of the Police Gazette, gilt-framed on the walls, and the little model guillotine on his desk. He called in Billy and told him the score, left him in charge, then sent for Molly Abelard, Susie Mountford, Ron Worrell and Laura Cotter, 
who did photographs and crime scenes. A DC called Peter Prime, very good with fingerprints, and another DC by the name of Free. Ballistics and firearms, also good with local organisation out in the sticks. He got them into his office, together with Brian, his driver, and another driver, name of David Rook, predictably called Doc, or the Doctor, because of his initials, DR. Tommy was about to give them the story so far, when his telephone rang. The red one, direct from the switchboard. It was the clerk of Chambers, Adrian Russell, who broke the news to Willoughby Sands when he arrived a little after nine on the Monday morning. Russell stood waiting as Sir Willoughby shuffled, wheezing up the stairs. In chambers, they tried to keep clients well away from the front hall when Willoughby Sands KC arrived, just in case they formed the opinion that the famous barrister was...